Acts 13, verse 13 through the end of the chapter. And uh, that's on page 537 in your pew Bible. Since it's a little longer, I'll give you a little bit of a summary. It's basically Paul is asked to speak in the synagogue. He goes through um, the Israelites' journey from Egypt on and how that points to Christ, what Christ did for us. And then some people believed, some people did not. So we will uh, start reading here. Acts 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But when they went from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arms, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin. And for, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy, I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who live in Jerusalem, and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as, as also it is written in the Psalms, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has also spoken in this way, I will give you the holy, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalms, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. 
But he who God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing the work doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, people, people, as they went out, the people begged that these might be told them the next Sabbath. And after meeting, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts of, of, to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what, what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of, of God be spoken to you for, first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal and many and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet, uh, from their feet against them and went into Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. It's a long passage. Uh, that Kevin had to read, and uh, grateful for, for you reading that for us. Uh, if you could be a missionary anywhere in the world, where would you go? I used to give my buddy Brad a hard time because he was called to go to Hawaii and, uh, and minister there. And uh, I always thought, well, I wish I had that calling. Uh, we have friends that are there now and uh, pastor there, and, uh, and it's... Um, Aside from the weather and everything, their missionary assignment is really just that. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip or if you've served as a missionary. All right, lots of them. Raise your hand high there. All right, lots of people. Lots of people. Something really interesting happens uh, when you're on a short-term mission trip. Um, you go through a period of preparation and training and learning. And uh, this past week... I found a book, a notebook that I had taken notes as we were preparing to go to Italy, uh, to go to Rome to minister to uh, refugees who were fleeing from the Middle East War um, back in 2001, 2002, after 9-11. Uh, when the war began in Iraq and the area, refugees began fleeing from Iraq and they would go into Europe and they had to register in the country in which they started. So Italy had the largest coastline, and so they could get in and out 
fairly easily without registering, but Italy refused to help those refugees, and so the church began to do so. And I remember flipping through this notebook and seeing uh, all these prayers that we had written. I had a dozen phrases that I knew in, in Italian. Where's the bathroom? Uh, you know, where's, can I have some water? Or those kinds of things. Um, and then some different phrases in the gospel and uh, interlinear New Testament that had both translations there. It was just such an intense time for a 12-day mission trip. And, and yet while I was there, I was hypersensitive to the fact that in every step, at every turn, uh, the Holy Spirit might bring someone in my path that needed to hear the gospel. And so I was uh, looking everywhere for every opportunity I could take. And then I came back home and, uh, you know, got back into life and got back into rhythm and routine. And, and I found myself um, not living as a missionary in my everyday life. I found myself just sort of going through my day-to-day routines and rhythms. But then in 2003, uh, the Lord called me to be an evangelist. And so from that calling, uh, I began to walk differently in my everyday life. I, I made it a goal of mine to share the gospel as many times as I could. And I called them um, at-bats, right? Maybe I wouldn't get into the gospel message, but I would attempt to get into a gospel conversation. And, and so it was my goal um, to get into as many at-bats, to have as many opportunities to share the gospel as I could. And there were some days when I could uh, get into gospel conversations eight, nine, ten times a day. Uh, I remember sometimes it would be six o'clock or seven o'clock at night, and I hadn't had one uh, gospel conversation In one of those instances in particular, I was at a gas station, it was like 8 o'clock at night, and it had been a dusty week, and so there was a long line of people at the drive-through car wash, and I thought, oh, I've got to get a gospel conversation attempt in today, so I walked over and I I knocked on this guy's window, and I said, hey, I've got this presentation, um, uh, this biblical presentation, and I'll give you $5 if you let me present it to you. And the guy's like, well, I'm not going anywhere, you know? And so I walk alongside of him as the cars. Like, it took, you know, six times for the cycle to go through. And so I presented this whole thing to him, and I paid him the $5. And, and at the end of it, he said, you don't even need to pay me. And I said, well, how did I do? Did it, was it okay? Does it, did it make sense to you? And, and it was a meaningful at-bat. But that was what the rhythm was like when I had that calling to be an evangelist that I immediately switched over into viewing my everyday life as a missionary. My hope for us today is that as we look through this passage, I want to ask you, what would change if you approached your day-to-day life as though you were a missionary? What would you do different? How would your mindset change? What would your prayer life look like? What would your scripture memory life look like? How would you face everyday encounters on the road or in convenience stores or grocery stores? What would it look like if you were tasked with going to a foreign nation, living as a holy, set-apart, committed missionary, except that that foreign nation is your neighborhood or your cul-de-sac or your cubicle, or your place of business, 
or your neighborhood or wherever you shop, if you lived as though God had called you to be a missionary in the current context that you're living in, I think that that would be different. I think that you would do something different. In our passage today that Kevin read for us, Paul and Barnabas are are living out this extended missionary journey. Their goal is to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, to, um, to equip a local leadership to start a church, and to move on to the next city. That's their goal. Is in every community they go, they want to share the gospel, they want to make disciples, they want to uh, commission those leaders to start a church, and then they want to move on to the next city. And I think that we can learn a lot about what it means to live on mission every day. At the end of the message, I'm going to give you seven principles for living like an everyday missionary from this passage. I see the point of this passage is that Paul and Barnabas are determined to carry out their mission that the Holy Spirit called them to fulfill at the beginning of Acts 13. They were called, commissioned, set apart. Set apart Paul and Barnabas for the, the, the mission to which I've called them. Paul and Barnabas are committed to that, and they're going to go live as missionaries on this extended journey that might have taken as much as a year and a half. My purpose for this sermon, my hope is, my prayer for you, is that for the Christ followers in the room, that you will learn from them, and you will approach your everyday life as though you were a missionary. Let's get back into some of the text here. In verse 13 of chapter 13, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and come to Perga and Pamphylia. It's a tongue twister, right? Perga, Pamphylia. By the way, Kevin did a great job reading some really, you know, it's not always easy to get all these names and and locations right. Um, And we learn in this first passage that John leaves them. Who is John? Who's John? Anybody know? Also known as Mark, that's right. John is John Mark. And he's described as a young man. This is Barnabas' cousin. Uh, you might know some other details about Mark. Uh, Mark's mother, Mary. Remember just a few chapters ago when Peter was in prison and all the believers were at the house of Mary and they were praying. And Rhoda, the servant girl, when Peter knocks on the door, she goes to the door. This is Mark's mom. John Mark's mom and, um, and possibly Barnabas's sister or cousin. This is a family, and John Mark is the younger cousin of that, um, of Barnabas. Uh, another uh, little incidental detail about John Mark. In Mark's gospel, I think it's chapter 13, verse 51, when Jesus and the disciples are in the garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is praying, and drops of uh, sweat and blood are pouring out, and then the traitor comes and Jesus is arrested. It says that um, the soldiers grabbed the linen cloth of one young man, and as he tried to get away, they removed the linen cloth, and it says a young man ran away naked. This is probably Mark. Mark was probably just a teenager um, hanging around the apostles and had access to Jesus in his life. And his mother was obviously a believer as part of the church. This is John Mark. But John Mark is labeled as a deserter because of this particular incident. 
in John 13, uh, Acts 13, 13. He leaves them. He went with them, accompanied them the 90 miles through the island of Cyprus. He got on the boat in Paphos, and then they went to Pamphylia, and then he got into Perga. And John Mark says, I'm not going any further. He's a deserter. Why did he leave? Commentators propose three possible reasons. See, Barnabas' home island was Cyprus. And after Cyprus, they go into Paul's home territory. And from this point forward, the dynamic changes. And it's no longer Barnabas and Paul. But from now on, it's Paul and Barnabas. And Paul is the leading man. And Paul is the spokesperson. And even when they go into Iconium and Derby and Rhodes and all these other places, in one place, they say Paul is the spokesman and this is the deity, the quiet one, Barnabas. John might have been upset with the change of leadership, maybe. There was also a bit of danger. A second reason commentators pose that, um, that John Mark left is that there was a bit of danger. When they got to Perga, uh, in order for them to get to Antioch and Pisidia, they had to cross over the Taurus mountain range. Uh, Antioch and Pisidia was 3,600 feet above sea level, and it was an arduous journey. Uh, it was a difficult place, and so maybe John Mark said, I'm not going any further, it's too dangerous. It could have just been homesickness. It could have just been that he was infatuated with the idea of missionary work, but a, a, as the time went on, Everybody knows who's been on a mission trip, there's sort of a midpoint to the trip when you just get fatigued. And John Mark might have just been fatigued. Who knows why? We don't know why. But we do know that Luke and Paul label him as a deserter. And it's such a sharp dispute that in a few chapters, when Paul and Barnabas decide to go back and retrace their steps, they have such a sharp dispute, a, a real argument that they divide over it. They split up as this missionary team, and they divide. Barnabas takes his cousin John Mark, and they go to Cyprus. And Paul takes Silas, and they go and retrace these steps. It's a real issue here. Verses 14 through 15. Once they cross the Taurus Mountains, and they come into Antioch and Pisidia, it says, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue said, if you, if you have anything to say, now's the time to say it. Uh, they, um, they get into this synagogue and we have some insight here about the typical synagogue structure. By the way, the synagogue grew up um, during the intertestamental period from the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi to the opening of John the Baptist's ministry was about 400 years. And during all that time, through the different uh, captivities, the Babylonian captivity and, and other captivities and ruling nations that came through, they would often take chunks of Israelite citizens, Jewish citizens, and displace them around the empire. Ultimately, this was called the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews around the world. But everywhere that they went, they would set up a synagogue. It was a place where every Saturday, every Friday at 6 p.m. to Saturday at 6 p.m., called the, the, the Sabbath, on that Sabbath day, they would gather together and there was a structure to it. They would read from the Law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, 
Numbers, Deuteronomy, yeah, you got it. Jeland is how I remember it, right? Jeland, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would read from the Pentateuch, and then they would read from the prophets, and then they would recite the Shema, and they would sing together. And, and then they would invite somebody, or the rabbi himself, would stand up and he would teach a sermon, much like what a lot of what we do. They invited a guest, and I don't know why. It could have been that, um, that Paul dressed in rabbinical clothes. He was a rabbi. He was, it could have been that he was, they got word that um, he was trained by the most famous rabbi of all, Gamaliel. And if he was a student of Gamaliel, Paul would have had access to preach in any synagogue in the world. For whatever reason, they invited him to come up. And then verses 16 through 41 comprise Paul's first recorded sermon first recorded sermon, and it may just be a a conglomeration or a representation of all of his sermons that he preached in synagogues. But I'm just going to summarize it for you, verses 16 through 41. It's a sermon with three parts. Verses 16 through 25, Paul is just giving an introduction, and he's retracing how God called Abraham, and he called, um, uh, you know, to King David, and he goes into all this sort of introduction that prepares them for the proclamation of Jesus. It's just a period in his address where he motions with his hand and he begins to teach them. John Stott says that God is the subject of nearly every single verb that Paul chose in this introduction. John Piper notes that this text is utterly saturated with God. Sixteen times Paul presses home the truth that God is the central actor in redemptive history. Paul drives the point home that God is overseeing sovereignly, not just all of history, but more specifically redemptive history in His choosing, in His acting, in His intervening in all of redemptive history to bring about this one moment in time where he concludes the introduction with John the Baptist saying, I'm not even worthy to untie. I'm not the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. One's coming after me. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and unbuckle the buckle on his Birkenstocks, right? I'm not even worthy to do that for Jesus. He declares clearly that this Messiah is coming. That's the first part of his sermon. The second part of his sermon in verses 26 through 37, this is where Paul wanted to land. He set it up that Jesus had been prophesied and that God had brought all these events through history together so that he could get to this one moment that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, is the Messiah. He introduces Jesus and he calls this news about Jesus the euangelion. It's the word good news in Greek. The good news. He's there to proclaim to them this good news that Jesus is the heralded Messiah, the one who was to come. The one that Moses said, a greater prophet than me shall come. He quotes Psalm 2, that, that my Lord said to David, my Lord said to my Lord, uh, he said, this is my son. He says all these different things that point to Jesus as the fulfillment of the Messiah. And he declares Jesus' identity as the Messiah, and it's confirmed by the fact that Jesus was resurrected. Resurrection confirms his identity. He shows that Jesus fulfilled all prophecy. He quotes Psalm 2, verse 7. He quotes Psalm 16, verse 10. He quotes Isaiah 55. He talks about the suffering servant. In all these ways, 
Those who knew within the synagogue, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what they call the 22 books uh, of the Bible, the law, the prophets, and the scriptures, the history, their scrolls, they knew all those things. Paul was quoting, showing that Jesus was this one to come, and his resurrection proves it. Finally, in, in his last section of the sermon, verses 38 through 41, Paul gives them some application. And he says, the promise of forgiveness is for all those who would believe in Jesus. The promise of forgiveness. Tony Morita writes, in effect, Paul is saying this. Here's the good news of the gospel. You can have the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And that's still the good news that we proclaim today. That you, in your sins, can be forgiven. See, the content of the gospel never really changes. The content of the gospel is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If I were to ask you, uh, why should God let you into heaven? You might be tempted to say, because I'm a good person. So the Bible's message is that you're not a good person. No matter how moral you think you are, no matter how religious you think you are, no matter what condition you think, you might say, well, I got a good heart. I'm not like a, a murderer. I'm not a robber. I'm not, you might say all these things that would compare you to the worst people in our society. But if you were to compare yourself to the God's standard of righteousness given in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, if you were to compare yourself to that standard, and if you were to be honest with yourself, you might say, yeah, I've blown it. I've told a lie before. And it only takes one sin for us to be labeled a sinner. How many banks do I have to rob before I'm declared a bank robber, right? Just one. It only takes one sin for us to fulfill the truth of God's Word that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you can acknowledge that you've sinned at least once, that puts you in the camp of the rest of us. We know that we're sinners, and the truth is, we don't just sin once, do we? <laughs> it's Sunday, 11.30, you might have already sinned 10 times just while we're sitting here. Because we're all sinners, we're separated from God. And because God is holy and just and righteous, He has to punish sin. Because He's holy, He has to punish sin. Have you ever watched one of those datelines and they finally catch the criminal and there's the sentencing moment? You never hear the judge say, well, I think you're a good person and so I'm just going to waive the penalty because you killed so many people or whatever. You never hear that. And you always hear people in the courtroom demanding justice. Well, if God is a holy and righteous judge, His righteousness and His holiness demands punishment for sin. But because He loves us, God so loved the world, because of His great love for us, He sent Jesus, born of a virgin, so He had no original sin. Jesus lived this sinless life. And so Jesus became a substitute in that He willingly laid down His life, taking the punishment of death that we deserved on Himself. And in exchange, giving us His righteousness. His sinlessness. You've heard justification as it is um, just as if I've never sinned. Um, that's one way that people describe justification. But he doesn't just give us his sinlessness. 
He also gives us his perfect obedience. It's just as if we had fulfilled the law of Moses perfectly. Justification is our gift for placing our faith and trust in Jesus who died as a substitute. That's essentially the gospel message that Paul proclaims. That by faith you can have forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God and the promise of an eternal life in heaven with God. How do they respond to his sermon? Look at verses 42 through 43. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them next Sabbath. Listen, I often get that reaction, right? After my sermon on Sunday, I know many of you come up to me and you beg me, can we just come back next week and can you keep speaking longer and longer? I always hear that. It's one of my favorite uh, responses of feedback. Listen, when you start to analyze the results of Paul's proclamation of the gospel in this region, I want you to listen for some of these key words. It's nothing short of a revival, of an awakening. Just listen to some of the descriptions. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them next Sabbath. And then after the meeting broke up, many Jews and converts to Judaism began to follow Paul and Barnabas. And they instantly began to urge them to continue in the grace of the Lord. So they began discipleship immediately. Right after that message, many believed and many came. Then verse 44, the next Saturday, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now this is not a small city, Pisidia Antioch. It's a large city, uh, and, and many, it says almost the whole city gathered. And when the Jews saw, they were filled with jealousy. But Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Well, let me just pause here and make this point. This can be said for many hearers in this room. That you judge yourself unworthy and you thrust aside the gospel message, essentially saying that you are not receiving eternal life in heaven. He said you rejected Jesus and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. It's essentially saying we shake the dust off of our feet and we will no longer proclaim the gospel to stubborn, hard hearts. Now, there's a dynamic here that I want to warn you about. You can come to church week in and week out, and you can hear the Word of God, and you can file away as good information, uh, a nice instruction, a good moral story, a good example. But the longer you fail to respond sensitively, to the Holy Spirit's prompting in your heart. The longer you do that, you build up a callus. I don't have many calluses because I don't work the way some people work. Charles works. I have guys with big calluses that work with their hands. And what happens is the skin that's softer like mine is, um, as it continues to rub up against hard objects, becomes calloused and not so sensitive anymore. And that same process can happen to your heart the longer you hear the Word of God and fail to respond. There are religious people in this room who know the Word of God better than I do. They've been under it their whole life and yet have failed to respond obediently to the Holy Spirit's prompting. And essentially, Paul is saying the same thing 
you've thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Verse 47, the Lord commands us, I've made you a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they had a totally different response than the Jews. It says, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The Gentiles heard the same gospel message and responded in humility and brokenness and in faith to Jesus. How can we put this into practice? What can we learn about gospel proclamation from this example in Antioch? And let me return to this idea. How can you live as a missionary in your current context? You don't necessarily have to travel around the world to do missionary work. You can make disciples right here in your hometown in your cul-de-sacs, on your streets, in your offices, in your neighborhoods, wherever you live, work, and play, you can make disciples and you can approach your everyday life and routine as though you were a missionary living in a foreign culture. What principles does this particular passage teach us about that? Let me just give you seven things. Seven principles for living as an everyday missionary from this passage. Number one, if you're taking notes, Number one is that you should anticipate relational conflict and work through it without sacrificing the mission. Anticipate and work through relational conflict without sacrificing the mission. We see that from John Mark. He abandons the team. He had committed to travel with them. But I want to tell you not to be deterred from your purpose and mission no matter the obstacle. Maybe it was difficult for Barnabas to see his relative leave and to put him on a boat and to send him back to Jerusalem. But they weren't deterred. It, it didn't sabotage their gospel ministry. Paul and Barnabas pressed on despite the relational conflict that their team had experienced. I had a conversation with Cherie this past week and I just had to confess to her that I just, it's easy for me sometimes to overlook those who are partners in the gospel here in this church. See, just like Nehemiah, everybody kind of had their portion of the wall and they, they had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And, and I'm responsible for my wall, part of the wall, which is preaching and, and leading the church. That, that sometimes it's easy for me to overlook a small group leader or it's over, easy for me to overlook the elders or it's easy for me to not give my ministry attention to those who are co-laboring with me in the gospel when at times they may need more ministry or more attention or more effort. And I just confess that as a weakness, as a difficulty, that my, sometimes I can get preoccupied with who's not in the room versus who is in the room. And as a result of that, oftentimes relational conflict comes up. And it's disheartening when there's conflict with those that we serve with on our ministry teams, isn't it? Because we expect opposition from the outside, but, but it's a real kick in the gut when you get it from the inside, when there's difficulty working on a ministry team. Whenever you face opposition and division and relational conflict, let me just give you a couple things that you can do. 
Number one, seek reconciliation. Pursue it. The Apostle Paul said, as far as it depends on you, make sure that you're making peace with everyone. Go to them face to face. Resist the temptation to gossip, to bring others into the conversation. And what do you think about this? Did I respond right? And when they did this to me, did, did I do this okay? Listen, skip all that. Go, go straight to the person that you're having relational conflict with and deal with it in a godly way. A person-to-person, face-to-face kind of way where, where you're trying to resolve relational conflict. Confess your sin. Repent when necessary. Pursue unity. And if in the end, there can be no real reconciliation, come to grips with the fact that God can use division even for His own glory. It's just a few chapters later that Paul and Barnabas separate. Barnabas and John Mark go to Cyprus and do missionary work, and Paul and Silas go and do missionary work elsewhere. God even used their division and their separation for His own glory. And you can come to grips with the fact that God uses division for His own glory. Recently, we've been praying for uh, Lydie's church as uh, six staff members resigned. And in the past few weeks, we've learned that they went to start another church locally within the community. Now listen, it's not our place to be a judge between who's right and wrong between that uh, division and that congregation. It's a painful, heartbreaking experience. But we have to come to grips with the fact that God could bless both congregations and that He can use both congregations for His own glory and His own majesty, however painful the point of division is. It's for our sake to be the local body of believers that we hurt with those who are hurting, we grieve with those who are grieving, that we pray for those, that this division might be for the glory of God. It's hard to see that now from their perspective, but it's our hopes that there can be reconciliation. That's the first point. How to live as a missionary, anticipate and work through relational conflict. Number two, persevere through adversity and opposition. John Mark did not persevere through whatever adversity or opposition that they faced. And let me just tell you this. um, One of the easiest times for you to quit the work that God has called you to is in the beginning stages. You'll hear words like, this is a a mess, it's a waste of your time. Why did you even commit to this? There's nothing good that's going to come of this. In the beginning, there is always resistance. Temptation to abandon the work. John Mark, they only had one convert on 90 miles by 12 miles of the island of Cyprus. Only one convert, Sergius Paulus. Plenty of opposition through Elymas, the sorcerer. It's not a lot of fruit to point to. It's a lot of heartache, a lot of pain, a lot of walking, a lot of difficulty. Only one convert. The easiest time to quit the work that God has called you to is, is in the beginning steps. I remember texting um, er, earlier yesterday with Rachel Bashline, who was a missionary in the Middle East. Rachel went to serve and to be a missionary there in the Middle East. And and I just texted her and I said, you've been on my mind all week. Tell me, were there times that you faced opposition? She said, oh yeah. Yeah, we would be right in the, uh, the beginning stages of about to share the gospel with someone when a neighbor would come and knock and it would just completely squelch the conversation 
in that Muslim environment, um, it was difficult to get one Muslim to talk about the gospel if another Muslim showed up. Opposition abounds. And if you can persevere through it, you can see fruit. What happened after Cyprus? Well, in Antioch and Pisidia, the whole city comes out, many converts. The next city in Iconium, a great number of Jews and Greeks believe, and they remain for a long time. They're signs and wonders. They teach the new disciples until they're run out of town by opposition. They go to Lystra, and in Lystra they heal a man. Um, Paul is stoned and dragged out of the city, and then they go to Derby, And then when they're in Derby, they preach the gospel to the city, and they make many disciples in Derby. Listen, if John Mark had persevered and gone through the obstacles and all those things, he would have experienced the fruitfulness of faithful gospel ministry. If you're going to be an everyday missionary, persevere through adversity and opposition. Number three, and I considered putting this point at the end because it's probably the most uh, personal to me. Number three is that if you're going to be an everyday missionary, the gospel is made powerful when you are at your, not your strongest, not at your best, when you're at your weakest. Paul tells us in Galatians that when he came, uh, he said, when I came to the churches in Galatia, you know that it was because of an illness that I first proclaimed the gospel to you. Do you remember that passage in Galatians 4? He said, I came to you because I was sick. He did not come to them full strength. A lot of commentators say that it could have been malaria or something that affected his eyes because he said, if you could have, you would have ripped out your eyes and given them to me. That's what Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. When he came to them, it wasn't because he was full strength, hitting on all cylinders. The truth is that Paul came to them in weakness. He said the same thing in 1 Corinthians when he went to Corinth to preach the gospel. He said, when I came to you, I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. If you're going to approach gospel ministry, stop leaning on your own strength. You will bear nothing lasting for the kingdom if it's done because you're doing your best. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. And he said, I pleaded with God three times that it should leave me, but God said to me in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, this is recorded, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul said, therefore, I boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I think more of you would be missionaries in your everyday life, if you simply relied on the strength of the Lord to compensate for your weaknesses, you say, I don't have it all together. I can't be a missionary. I'm too weak. I'm too, I don't have this together. I don't know enough of this. You uh, maximize your weaknesses and that keeps mission work at bay rather than being okay with your weaknesses and causing you to lean twice as hard into the grace and the provision that the gospel provides. 
You must minister in weakness. And if you think that you've got it all together and your strengths are so good that you can be a missionary, you're, you're likely relying on your own strength and you will see very little fruitfulness. Number four, understand and believe that God is the sovereign architect of salvation in all of history. I mentioned earlier that Paul refers to God or God does the action in Paul's sermon. It's mentioned over 20 times. Nothing occurs outside of the providence and the divine will of God. We often call these moments divine appointments. Have you ever heard that phrase before? A divine appointment when somebody who needs to hear the gospel is met by somebody who knows the gospel and through some exchange, uh, one hears the gospel and responds by faith. And, and we look back at that moment and we say, what a divine appointment. What a, what a time that God put just the right people in just the right places so that the gospel may be heard. Listen, every appointment is a divine appointment because God is the divine sovereign architect of redemptive history. Any encounter that you have with a lost person or with someone else um, that has gospel fruitfulness, God is the architect of those things. And if you're going to live as an everyday missionary, you need to experience and expect that every encounter with someone is an opportunity to demonstrate the love of God and to move them closer to faith in Christ. Number five, it's important for us, if we're going to live as everyday missionaries, to proclaim the gospel contextually without altering the message of the gospel. This is a little bit nuanced, but I want to make sure you understand. <clears throat> we do not alter the content of the gospel message. Do you understand? The gospel <clears throat> has objective content that we proclaim. We're separated from God by our sin. We're all sinners by nature. God is holy and just and righteous and must punish our sins. Uh, that the punishment for sin is death and eternal separation from God. And that the sinless, perfectly righteous person of Jesus took our punishment on himself, substituting himself because he loves us. That is the gospel content. And we don't change that. It's not up for us, to, it's not up to you to make Jesus cool, right? It's not your role and your place to make Jesus more relevant. The, you may have mixed feelings about the He Gets Us kind of ads, but it, it's kind of a way in which sometimes people might be um, trying to make Jesus more identifiable and local. Listen, it's not our role to make Jesus palatable for our culture. He's an offense. He's a stumbling stone. He's a cornerstone. This is the cornerstone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is a stumbling offense, and you can't make Jesus cool enough for this culture. Don't change the content of the gospel message. But you can preach the gospel in a way that we call contextualization. Paul preached a different sermon in Acts chapter 17 in Athens to the Areopagus than he did to the synagogue believers. Remember? In Acts 17, he walks around and he's, he's finding an idol to an unnamed God and he's quoting their own poets and he's, he's, he didn't quote one Old Testament passage, uh, more than one that predicted the Messiah and the prophecies and David. He didn't, they didn't know it. Sounds like they're having a good time down there. <clears throat> Contextualization understands that we don't alter the gospel message. We just understand the audience. 
We just understand the audience and we build different bridges so that we can get to the gospel content and message. Number six, make the word of God your primary source. Make the word of God your primary source. I love how Luke ends this passage. There's a clear emphasis on the word of God in verses 44 through 52. The next Sabbath, the whole city gathered to what? To hear the word of the Lord. Verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Verse 47, the Lord commanded us And they rejoiced, verse 48, glorifying the word of the Lord. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading. Listen, if you ever hear from this pulpit somebody who's not proclaiming the word of God, it's my hope, it's my desire, whether it's me or somebody else or or somebody in the future, whether you go to another church or this church, wherever you are, it's my sincere desire that the content is primarily made up of the word of God. God has given it to us as um, the only means by which we can see Him and know Him and experience Him. It will last forever. <clears throat> My opinions don't matter. It's the Word of God that matters. And if at any time what I'm saying doesn't line up with the Word of God, I always appreciate it when you come up to me and you say, this wasn't really clear to me. Can you, can you explain this to me? And, and I say, yeah, you're right. I could have made it much clearer. Or, or maybe I just misspoke. Or maybe I misunderstood. You should be listening diligently and carefully to make sure that these line up with Scripture. They weren't sharing great stories. Necessarily, they weren't using relevant illustrations. They weren't entertainers. Have you ever watched somebody on TV that's famous and is a preacher and and their personality shines brighter than the Word of God or their, their stories captivate people? Listen, the Word of God is the content And finally, number seven, commit to proclaiming the gospel regardless of the results. The truth is you're going to get mixed reactions. Commit to proclaiming the gospel regardless of the results. Paul preached the same message all over Cyprus, likely. One convert. Paul preached the same message to the same Jews and God-fearing Greeks and Romans in the same synagogue, and one group rejected the message while another embraced the gospel gladly. Expect mixed results. As a matter of fact, a good rule of thumb for you is from Acts 17, when Paul preached to the Areopagus, it says that some believed, some mocked, and some wanted to hear more. Listen, I get a bird's eye view of this crowd and I can tell you in the room, all three of those are present. There's some people who who are rejoicing at hearing the word of God. Some want to come back and hear more and others, I I could stop preaching forever and they would be glad. That may say more about me than it does about them, to be honest and to be fair. but, But the truth is that every crowd has a mixed reaction. There are many people who, who don't want to hear the word of God and they don't want to hear it preached. There are others who want to hear more while there are many who believe. Anytime you proclaim the word of God, expect mixed results. But your role, your role is to be faithful to speak the gospel and leave the results to God. You preach the gospel and leave the results to God. I had two friends when I first became a believer that I shared the gospel with. And one named Jamie, and with a string of angry curse words, told me to never talk to him about this ever again. Another, my friend Elaine, loves the Lord even to this day. 
we were on the phone and, and I <clears throat> heard her talking about God uh, in sort of a general, vague, sort of surfacey way. And, and while I was sitting there um, listening to her, uh, you know, don't judge me, but I was reading as well, you know, kind of doing two things at once. I'm listening to her and I'm reading and I'm reading in Second John uh, or First John where it says to test the spirits, any of those who acknowledge Jesus as, is of God and any who doesn't acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God is not of Him. And it just dawned on me that through this half hour conversation with Elaine that she had never really mentioned Jesus. She just talks about God as a spirit and as this force and just in these general vague terms. And so I just said to her, I'm just reading here, and I noticed that you always talk about God like this, but you never really mention the name of Jesus. And, and she was offended. She hung up the phone. And I was like, oh, well, I blew it there. And um, maybe 10 or 15 minutes later, she called me back, and she said, uh, I, I've been thinking about what you said, and, and, and I think you're right. I think I don't really know who Jesus is. And so I went to her house at 11 o'clock on a school night, and, and began to open the Word of God to her. And, and I think I stayed there till 3 o'clock in the morning, just going through Scripture, going through Scripture, and talking to her about the Gospel. And she received the Word with eagerness and gratitude. Listen, it's been 35 years, and Elaine is still walking with the Lord, still deeply rooted. You can proclaim the Gospel message to two different people and get two different radical results, but it's your role to share the gospel faithfully and leave the results to God. It's my prayer today that you would live as an everyday missionary here in this, in this world. And I hope that this passage gives you some insight in how to do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for this message, for this long, long passage and long sermon as well. We give you thanks because in Christ you always lead us in triumphal procession. And through us, you have determined to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus everywhere. Your word tells us that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we're a fragrance of death, but to another a fragrance of life. Father, I pray that this congregation would smell with the aroma of Christ. That wherever we go in our local context, that we would live as though we're the fragrance of Christ to life for those who are pursuing, seeking after you, knocking and seeking. Pray that you would use this congregation for your glory and your majesty. In Jesus' name, amen.